Our scripture lesson this evening is from Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 9 through verse 25. And the book of Acts here focuses in on the um, one aspect of the Samaritan revival. And particularly on the hypocrisy of Simon the magician. We... uh, have been hearing a lot about revival in our day lately in the news and on college campuses. And of course, we, we pray for revival. We desire revival. We should rejoice uh, in hearing of uh, revival that is true and God-glorifying. But we also need to recognize that in every revival, there is the potential of false conversions. There is that potential of being swept along Uh, with the crowd and being uh, introduced to something that's new and fresh and seemingly desirable and uh, claiming to be part of that movement. And and that's what we have happening here is um, a wonderful revival happening in and among the Samaritans. And yet all was not well. There were at least some who were not truly Uh, trusting in Jesus Christ. Uh, So we want to use this scripture reading and reflection upon it to examine ourselves as well. Um, The the book of Acts, really in its entirety up to this point and and continuing past this point, is a book of revival, a glorious revival uh, in and around Jerusalem at first, um, expands into a a, a revival in in, uh, Judea and Samaria, and then, of course, ongoing to the end's of the earth. We are hopeful for revival continuing in our day and our place as well. Um, but what happens here in our reading is that the apostles, upon hearing of this revival in Samaria, uh, dispatch um, some of their number to examine what's happening in Samaria to make sure that what is uh, being taught is faithful and what is being believed is sincere and genuine. And so Um, That's what we have here, beginning at verse 9. Let's give our attention then to God's holy word. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not fallen on any of them yet, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, He offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. 
But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the good news to many villages of the Samaritans. Amen. So here we see in this passage a a wonderful revival and yet a word of caution, a word of warning to us as well as we too hear the word of God proclaimed to us day in, uh, week in and week out, and we read the Bible perhaps every single day, um, we, we need to be as um, circumspect as the Jerusalem church was in examining what is indeed happening. The story that we've read has both good and bad news. Perhaps bad news dominates the text. The bad news is that there are hypocrites in the church. Right? Um, this magician was admitted into the church. He's a church member. He's a baptized believer, identified among the people of God. Um, and, And there are hypocrites in our day as well. People who profess faith without possessing Christ. The good news, if, if you could put it that way, is that hypocrisy isn't an asymptomatic disease. Um, the hypocrisy of Simon the magician was identifiable by the Apostle Peter. It was called out. And uh, even hypocrites, to put it in better, better news, even hypocrites are able, with God's help, to repent and be forgiven. So we want to consider this this story and see what it might be saying to us in our day as well. So how does the story start? I want to consider in verses 9 through 17 a great revival. A great revival. Verse 14 says, Samaria received the word of God. And that's remarkable. You might say, in one sense, that the revival in Samaria was unexpected. Samaritans were half Jewish, half Assyrian. They might have been even less open to the gospel than the Jewish people were at that time. But on the other hand, you could say, well, Samaritans were outsiders. And outsiders often seem to be the first to embrace Jesus as he calls uh, with that welcoming message to come unto him and become children of God and receive an eternal inheritance. And so you might say, well, maybe this is unexpected, this revival in Samaria. But on the other hand, if we've been reading the book of Acts, the Samaritan revival is just what we ought to have expected. Right? God promised that the gospel would spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, even to the end of the earth. And now it was happening In answer to Peter and John's prayer, God also poured out His Spirit upon the Samaritans to confirm the spread of the Word as a sure indicator that God was at work here, that this was a genuine revival, not just emotional fervor. Their conversion then, that revival in Samaria, is 
an encouragement to us. We who are uh, in that um, designation of the, the ends of the earth, the uttermost parts of the earth, even further removed from the Jewish epicenter of Christianity, we ought to be encouraged that God will continue to do a great work among us and to spread the message of His great name around the world. But as we continue to dig into the story, we recognize that all is not well. Along with many others, we're told, Simon the magician believed and was baptized. Now, what does that mean that Simon believed? Does it mean that he truly believed, that he was sincere in what he was professing and then later backslid? Or were uh, Simon's um, uh, beliefs phony from the start? And, and we, we, we may not be able to answer that question definitively, but we can say that the church was right to baptize Simon, right? The former magician made a credible profession of faith in Christ, witnessed and received by apostles who had walked with the Lord Jesus Christ. They heard the profession of faith. They had no way, of course, of looking into the uh, apart from the Holy Spirit's direct communication, looking into the heart of Simon and saying, you know, this checks out or it doesn't check out. And they received that profession of faith and baptized him. But the fact that they did so, and then later, by uh, spiritual revelation, were, were forced to um, discipline Simon, communicates to us that there is a kind of faith that falls short of saving belief. Right? The Bible does in fact say that Simon believed. But that at this time at least, he wasn't savingly trusting in Jesus Christ. And the rest of the Bible indicates this in other places. Paul, for example, says in Acts 26, verse 27, that he was convinced that King Agrippa believed the words of the prophets. He says, I know you believe. And yet, King Agrippa himself declares that he's not a Christian. So there was a sense in which Agrippa believed the prophets, but wasn't trusting in Jesus Christ. What is, it, what is this communicating to us? It's, it's communi- communicating to us that saving faith includes the essential elements of both knowledge and trust. True believers know at least the basics of what verse 12 calls the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. True believers have that base of knowledge that God is holy and just. They know that He made people upright and in His own image, but that we humans chose rebellion and death. Believers have that set of knowledge that affirms that Jesus is the mediator whose perfect life and sacrificial death alone can return us to God's favor. So so there's this this set of knowledge, but beyond that set of knowledge for true believers, 
there is a radical distrust of their own selves and their own righteousness. True believers move beyond affirming actual, factual things about God and cast themselves at the mercy of Jesus Christ. And apparently not everyone had done that. And so we're, we're recognizing that in this revival, there is surely genuine faith being professed And the Holy Spirit acknowledges that through pouring himself out on the believers. But there's something less than saving faith also being professed in this congregation. And that brings us to the second part of the story where uh, we have revealed to us the hypocrisy of Simon in verses 18 through 23. The revelation of hypocrisy um, is very interesting that Simon, we're told at the beginning of the story, was used to impressing people. He had grown accustomed to people being amazed by him. He was able to perform what seemed to be magical, uh, unhuman feats. And so he loved the idea of people looking up to him and admiring him. And so when he thought the apostles had commanded the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, he offered them money for the same power. He thought, well, that would be a tremendous addition to the bag of tricks that I already possess. Who else can speak a word and have the power of God be poured out on people? Again, some... there's. Some commentators who defend Simon, who suggest that his motives were sincere, he simply wanted the Spirit to be poured out on more people. But I think we have to reject that interpretation because of how the Apostle Peter responds to Simon's request for the power to grant the Holy Spirit. Peter's judgment in verses 20 through 23 is scathing. One of the um, fiercest rebukes in the entire New Testament. And it warns all of us who read it to take refuge in Jesus by truly knowing and trusting in him. And to understand what I mean by that, recognize this as, as I suspect you do. The Bible, of course, is highly selective. The Apostle John says that. If, if even the things done by Jesus were recorded and written down, the world wouldn't be able to contain all the books that would be required. So, the missionary journeys of, of Paul and Peter and John and Philip and the others, highly selective. So we have to ask ourselves, why does the Holy Spirit select this part of history to be recorded in Scripture? Why record the profession of faith of this hypocrite? Well, surely it's so that we, who later on read the record of this revelation, can be admonished and warned and cautioned, even as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, that the things, that uh, the sins of our forefathers in the Old Testament and the punishments that fell upon them were for our admonition. And so Peter's rebuke here is not just for the sake of Simon, it's for all those who would read of this rebuke in the Word of God. Listen listen to what Peter says, four, four things that Peter says to Simon in strong rebuke. Uh, First of all, he says to him, you are headed for judgment. You're headed for judgment. Verse 20 says, 
may your silver perish with you. Now we know, as Scripture teaches, that money will perish. It, it, it isn't eternal. We ought to use it for eternal purposes, but money itself will perish. And what Peter is saying here is that unless we are transformed into new creations, we will perish too. In fact, no one more than Jesus in the New Testament warns about the terrors of hell and the possibility of perishing under God's judgment. Why does Jesus speak so much about hell and God's judgment? So that we would fear God's wrath and choose life by faith. And and that's what Peter is saying here. Peter, of course, isn't able to damn Simon. He's not consigning him to hell. He's warning him. Essentially, Simon, don't go to hell. But if you choose not to repent, you're going to perish along with your money. So first of all, Peter says, you're headed for judgment. Second, he says this to Simon, essentially, you don't understand God. You don't understand God. That's the mark of a hypocrite, isn't it? Someone who doesn't really understand God, doesn't really understand the power that they are engaging when they come to church and they confess the creed and they maybe even profess their faith before the congregation. They don't really understand what they're doing or they wouldn't be doing it if they weren't sincere. Simon is toying with a kind of power that is way out of his league. He doesn't understand God. Uh, Peter says this in verse 20, you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money? How far are you from understanding God? You, You think God can be purchased? You think God can be manipulated? With, by way of a transaction? No. Simon didn't understand the gracious and sovereign character of God's gifts. God gives blessing. He doesn't sell blessing. To think that God can be manipulated through uh, money or through the occasional good works or uh, a certain appearance of piety is a sign of spiritual ignorance, surely ignorant on the part of Simon and for all hypocrites throughout the ages. In fact, the more you know God, the more you will realize that His salvation is all of grace. A true believer will never think that they can manipulate God through acts of piety or through donations or personal uh, disciplines or whatever else similar to what Simon is intending to offer here. You don't understand God. Third, Peter says to this particular hypocrite, and Scripture says to all, your heart is not right with God, verse 21. Your heart is not right with God. In fact, what it's full of, his heart, not godliness or God's uh, thoughts, verse 23 says, you're full of bitterness. You're captive to sin. Your your heart isn't right with God. You you haven't joined the church. You haven't professed faith in Jesus Christ for the right reasons. Simon had other reasons for joining the church. It's another platform for him. It's another sphere of influence. Another opportunity to mingle with people. To impress people. Remember, he lusted for admiration. 
Luke tells us twice in verse uh, 10 and 11 that people paid attention to him. How intoxicating that can be for people to pay attention to us. And that he amazed people, also verses 9 and 11. What is, what is Simon teaching us in a tragic way that it is possible to embrace Christianity for the approval of people with little thought for God. Notice how Simon's thoughts of God are small. Hey, Peter, let me give you some money so I can also pour out the Holy Spirit of God. But his thoughts of humans are elevated. I want to impress people. I want to amaze people. And it's possible for uh, people in our day also to join the church for the wrong reasons. This is why, of course, we all must examine ourselves, examine our hearts, as uh, Paul admonishes in 2 Corinthians 13, um, to see if we're truly in the faith. Not that that text is expecting a negative answer. It isn't. In context, Paul's call to self-examination is hopeful. Um, it's, ex- it's expecting a positive result from that test, not a negative one. But we have to do the test. Peter was examining, you could say, Simon's heart through the help of the Holy Spirit. But he also, Simon, had to do that hard work. Your heart is not right with God. And then fourth, perhaps the hardest words he says to Simon in verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. What is the matter of which Simon the magician has no part nor lot? Well, it's the whole thing. It's the, it's the conversion. It's the revival. It's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It is uh, membership in the invisible spiritual church. You're not part of this, Simon. You're not part of this. You, 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 you claim to want to be part of it, but for all of these reasons, it's evident you're not really part of it. Peter, being an apostle and having the uh, un- unusual uh, authority, it seems, to communicate excommunication is doing just that here. He's, he's excommunicating Satan, uh, Simon to Satan by the keys of the kingdom given to him by Jesus Christ. Why is he doing this? Because he, because he hates Simon? Because he has some personal vendetta against Simon? Or he you know, is in a power struggle? He doesn't want another powerful man in the church? No, of course not. He's excommunicating Simon because he loves Simon's soul. And he himself is loyal to King Jesus. Church discipline in our day too is a painful remedy meant to shock sinners into recognizing the gravity of their sin. That's why Paul uses that that extreme phrase uh, uh, to turn one over to Satan. Right? What Peter is saying is, Simon, you have no part in this matter. from, from all that we know, you're not a child of God. You're a child of the devil. To gain a place in God's kingdom would come only through a new start for Simon. So there's this revelation of hypocrisy. And, and then third, finally, we want to consider this evening the remedy for hypocrisy. Peter doesn't just leave Simon in this uh, position of condemnation. 
He's not left hopeless. Peter has truly used the law to break his spirit. Simon ought to be um, not confident of his standing with God at this moment. He's truly broken. He ought to be at least recognizing that he is in need of a savior. But Peter also offers the cure of the gospel. Repent and be saved. He's setting before him salvation. You too, Simon, hypocrite as you are, with as rotten a heart as you have, you too can be saved. Repent, therefore, he says in verse 22, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. You've sinned greatly. Your uh, 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 intent to purchase the Holy Spirit of God is a, is a terrible sin. It's still known as the sin of simony in uh, theological lingo today. To have a sin named after you in the church of Jesus Christ is a big problem. He's a, he's a big sinner. Terrible sinner. Apparently, to this point, Simon had never been transformed by the gospel He believed, it seems, that Christianity could improve his life and enhance his reputation. He wanted some of what God had to offer, but apparently he had not yet needed God. He had never yet seen himself as a sinner in the hands of an angry God, justly angry over his heinous Sins. He had never, it seems, cried out to the Lord, confessing his sin, admitting that his iniquity had separated him from his God, as Isaiah 59.2 would teach him to cry out. He'd never confessed that his hands were defiled with blood, his fingers with iniquity, his lips had spoken lies, his tongue had muttered perversity, Isaiah 59, verse 3. He'd never yet taken up his cross to follow Christ. So Peter blesses Simon by urging him to get right with God. Sinner, get right with God. That is the message of the church of Jesus. It ought to be the message of the church in all ages, in all places. And God gives us the same chance today. And every time that we hear the ministry of the law and the ministry of of the gospel. So how does Simon respond? Remember, Peter told Simon, repent and pray. Simon responded to Peter saying, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Verse 24. What are we to to make of Simon's response? Is he sincerely asking for Peter's help? For the hard task of repenting? Maybe. I don't know. Um, Surely it's a good thing to ask others to pray for us. right? I hope if, if you and I are in become aware of our spiritual trouble that we would say to to friends and family members and elders and our pastors, pray for me. 
that I would be able to repent and turn away from my sins and be spared from the judgment that the law um, con- uh, under which the law condemns me. So it's possible that Peter, Peter is, uh, that Simon is looking to Peter for help and confessing his sins. But it's also possible that Simon the magician is outsourcing his spiritual responsibilities. Outsourcing his spiritual responsibilities, asking Peter to do it for him. And that's a danger for us as well, isn't it? Do we outsource spiritual responsibilities? Some people, even people in the church, will not repent and believe, saying that God must do it for them, that they must wait for God. But Peter, fully aware that only God can change the heart, tells Simon to repent, to change his ways, to fully lean on Jesus Christ. Don't outsource your spiritual responsibilities to God, so to speak, as if we're just going to wait for God to do something. Some people, even in the church, are content to have others pray for them, but pray little, if ever, for themselves. It's wonderful, isn't it, that we have praying parents, praying grandparents, praying pastors, praying teachers, But will we pray ourselves? Peter says, pray that none of what has been threatened to you will fall upon you. Some people, even in the church, blame all of their problems on others and will not take responsibility, will not say with the psalmist, I am evil, born in sin. Thou desirest truth within. I am part of the problem. In fact, I'm probably the biggest part of the problem. That's what Peter is telling Simon to say to God. Just, just go to God and tell him that you're a sinner. Tell him that you, you, you're sorry for your sins and you want to be renewed and live a truly godly life, no longer a hypocrite. I don't know if he did that. I hope that Simon listened to Peter and came under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit and obeyed the Lord. Our time for turning from sin and repenting and trusting in Jesus is right now. And and it's always right now. That's why the writer to the Hebrews says there's a day for you to repent. It's called today. Today, right now. Lest the judgments described in Psalm 95, which the writer to the Hebrews is reflecting upon, come upon us. And so, in light of the wonderful revival that God is constantly doing in the world around us, and we trust also among us, let's pray that we might examine ourselves and be found truly faithful with, with uh, no credit given to ourselves, We are as sinful as Simon, the magician. We pour out our sin before the Lord, trusting that he will heal us as well. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, which speaks of wonderful revival and glorious additions and numerical growth of the church, but also of some steps backward. And so we pray that in all of our churches... 
we would be um, conscious of the potential for hypocrisy, and that especially in our own lives, we would examine ourselves. Thank you for this warning. We thank you that um, this warning corresponds beautifully by the crisis that it creates to the wonderful salvation provided in our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our God. So do minister graciously to us for Christ's sake. Amen.